Welcome to Stories of Emotional Granularity, a podcast that's about emotion. My name is Jonathan Cook. I'm an independent researcher who studies emotion. And, you know, I'm going to let you know a little bit about myself as this podcast develops over time. But right now, I want to get straight into what this podcast is about. It's not about me. It's about emotion. So let's skip the theme music, the advertisements, the casual banter, and just get straight into talking about emotion. You may be wondering why emotion matters. In particular, enough for me to want to make a podcast about it, a podcast you ought to listen to. Well, the answer is that emotions are the last stronghold of our humanity. Emotions matter because it is emotions that tell us what matters. Emotions are stories, in a way, that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the world that we live in. Get beyond the facts of the world outside of us. Beyond the words and gestures that we use to connect with others. And you'll find emotion there at the middle of it all. Because emotion is something that belongs to us alone. We can try to share it with other people, but at its foundation, emotion is a private thing. Emotion is the foundation of our subjective experience. It is the one part of us that no one else can measure and no one else can claim. Some people, however don't want it to stay that way. We live in a time when some people are using the power of digital technology to try to break through the walls of the stronghold of emotion. They want us to believe that our emotions are just another commodity that can be scanned with machines, replicated by algorithms, and claimed as corporate property. They have invented chatbots that say that they can feel emotions. And they've invented automated facial scanners that they claim are able to read the emotions just by looking at our faces. Does that seem right to you? I want to see a future in which human emotion flourishes, in which a new level of emotional self-awareness gives us the insight required not just to survive, but to thrive as one part of a healthy living world where everybody has access to the resources they need to pursue lives of meaning. You know, over the last couple of decades, we have seen enough from Silicon Valley to know that its venture capitalists are not the ones who can be trusted as the stewards of our emotions. So we cannot wait and hope for someone to launch a startup with a new app that will protect and manage our emotions for us. If we want to defend the integrity of our own human emotions, the first step is to become familiar with those emotions. We need to know what it is that we seek to protect. And that is the task of this podcast, Stories of Emotional Granularity. 
emotional granularity is a term that was coined by the psychologist Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett to describe the ability of people to identify and distinguish between different subjective feelings. So, a person with high emotional granularity is capable of naming and explaining many different emotions. A person with low emotional granularity can only identify a small number of emotions. Emotional granularity is all about naming our feelings and learning to articulate those feelings to others so that we can construct a culture together that supports a diversity of emotional experiences. The more emotions we know how to feel and manage, the more strategies and tactics we will have at our disposal for managing the complexities of life. We will explore the details of emotional granularity more in the weeks to come. Each episode of this podcast will be devoted to just one emotion, explored from different perspectives with the help of guests who are going to share stories about the role of that particular emotion in their lives. And this week, we begin with the emotion of free Luftsleeve. Free Luftsleeve. Maybe you haven't heard of that before. It's a Norwegian word for the feeling of rightness that we get. When we are able to escape the architecture of civilized life and take a deep breath out in the open air. So free Luftsleeve literally means free air life or free air love. But as an emotion, it involves much more than that. One perspective on the emotion of free Luftsleeve comes from Lior Locker. Uh, Lior and I first met in the Portuguese capital city of Lisbon, where we worked together to organize a session on gender in business under a tree in a beautiful park called the Garden of the Stars. I'm Lior Locker. I'm an artist and I work in mixed media. What that means is usually either acrylic or collage or printmaking and very often two or three out of the three. And what I love about that is it helps to make a journey visible because you can see the different steps. It involves ripping things up and starting again, which I think is pretty much what life does as well. But then at the end of the process, you have something that says something that honors that journey and that makes it beautiful. And I think that's a great way to make that visible. So that's why I'm working in that way. Just this week, Lior sent me in the mail one of their works of art, a collage with the title The World 2. It's a multi-layered production with a map at its base, a bit of a mass transit ticket, some foliage, part of a QR code, and what feels like a blue block print of the opening to a ruined cathedral. 
it's got a very urban historical feel to it. And there is plenty of history around Lior these days as they are living in a city on the coast of England. I'm Lior, I'm non-binary. I live in the UK at the moment. I've been around the world a few times. So I've lived in six countries on four continents, but home for the moment is, is here. And I work with people and organizations that aren't just in it for themselves, but that want to make a bigger difference. Lior didn't grow up in England, but on the European continent, in the south of Germany. That's where they first experienced the feeling of Freiluftsliv, although they didn't have that name for this emotion at that time. So the, the Heidi image is not completely off the mark. Um, I grew up in the, in the foothills of the Alps, so it isn't quite Heidi sound of music. It's kind of the hills that come before the big mountains happen. It was really, really rural. And I mean, you know, like we didn't have street names. So the houses in the village were ordered, uh, were numbered in the order they were built, like that rural. You know, like not, not even school buses to the nearest high school. That's how remote it was. Yeah, and there wasn't really anywhere to go except the outdoors. I had very strict parents, so TV and so on wasn't, wasn't really a thing. Plus, you know, back then there were like three programs without a satellite dish. So, you know, there wasn't really much happening anyways. Yeah, so we were pretty much, it was pretty much a free range childhood. Like you'd come home from school, you'd do homework and then you'd go outside and you had to be back by the time it got dark. And that was it. And I didn't really ask too much where we were going or what we were doing or what we were up to. So it was my brother and me and two other kids in the village that were of a similar age, uh, age bracket. And we were just outside the whole time, basically. And it was, it, it felt really, really connected, like to the point where, like it felt less natural for me to be inside and for example, to wear shoes. So I kept getting trouble into trouble at school in summer because I refused to wear shoes because I didn't really see the point and it just felt better to be barefoot outside. Lior's experience as a young child suggests an important context for Freiluftsliv. It's an emotion that is felt in reaction to the feeling of containment in organized society. Now, is there a name for that specific emotion of feeling trapped by the structures of civilization? If any listeners know, of such a word, please get in touch and let me know. Now, Lior, they got in trouble at school and Lior was forced to wear shoes, but at home, they lived what they refer to as a free range childhood. The implication of that is that formal social expectations can make a person feel penned in like a chicken or a cow prevented from roaming by a fence on a farm where they might eventually be harvested. When school was over, though, and homework was done, Lior and the other kids their age escaped outside, where they ran 
barefoot, feeling connected to the world. Yeah, and I just have the, the fondest memories of being outside. I remember, so it's kind of hills and grassland. So there is a lot of agriculture, but it's more dairy. So a lot of it would be just grass with cows on it and occasional apple orchards and so on. So being outdoors meant climbing trees, which, which I got really good at as a kid. Definitely, I, I don't have fear of heights. So that's, that always felt really great. And I love just kind of hanging out, you know, climbing halfway up and hanging out on a branch and just being there, sometimes reading a book or just kind of hanging out in, in the tree with the tree. That, that always felt really comfortable and and very often because the you know kind of the on the on the pastures you would kind of grow the grass to a certain height and then they would cut it down and they would do that multiple times a year so there were definitely times when the grass was fairly high and I mean you know maybe it was knee high but you know for a kid it was kind of a pretty good um, pretty good size the farmers obviously didn't want us to you know to run around in the high grass and kind of trample it down because then you can't cut it properly and then you kind of lose uh, lose the food for the cows but but yeah I remember there was this this one hill where I think I don't know but 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 that was kind of my go-to my go-to place and particularly in spring before they did the first cut of the grass I remember just like making these little little dens or you know like I would have this tiny you know I would kind of walk in really carefully so you couldn't really see that you know a human had walked in and then just kind of you know kind of roll roll like a, you know like a cat I was kind of rolled rolled up in the middle and I was small enough or the grass was high enough that you couldn't really see me you know unless I mean maybe you could because as an adult you have a different angle but in my imagination you couldn't see me and yeah, I spent like entire afternoons there, just kind of being there, playing with the grass, looking, looking at the world from that vantage point, thinking thoughts. It strikes me, listening to Lior's description of their times as a child outside in the foothills of the Alps, that they were reenacting a truly ancient, free-ranging kind of life, like our ape ancestors, Lior felt a special kind of comfort climbing a tree and resting in its branches. Also like our ancestors, they came down from the trees from time to time to find a different kind of shelter in the tall grass. And I was kind of picking some of the, you know, like ripping off some of the grass around me. And then I remember I was making these elaborate kind of crowns of grass and I made them in a way that there was still bits of grass sticking up. And in my imagination, that made me completely invisible. And that's what I did. Like sometimes with flowers, sometimes without. Sometimes I tried to make baskets out of grass, which didn't quite work, but I kept trying anyways. And, and that was just how I spent a, a significant portion of my childhood, really. Outdoor shelter is about connection and houses are about separation. So when you're outside and you're like underneath a tree when it rains, you're kind of protected, but in a way that's still a part of everything else. 
And when you have a house, you know, like nature doesn't have right angles. So if, if you have a traditional house, it's like you're deliberately leaving everything outside. And, you know, the ideal is the temperature is always the same. The humidity is always the same and so on. Everything's like flat and angular and, and um, wipeable and kind of like, you know, I can I cleaned my kitchen sink early, you know, like you can you can disinfect it and everything. There's something in Freiluftsliv, as Lior describes it, that finds special pleasure playing at the boundary between wilderness and civilization. They make a basket, but one that falls apart. They find shelter outdoors in a tree, but an open kind of shelter that has no walls. Civilization has undeniable benefits, but there's something in it, Lior explains, that drains us. To get recharged, we have to spend time outdoors. It's kind of like you, you feel it, it kind of it's a nice homeostasis when I'm when I'm outside enough. And it doesn't have to be the same landscape, it just has to be what you know, whatever landscape is where I am. So it doesn't have to be, you know, the, the southern Germany temperate climate kind of a landscape. But for me, it's almost like I'm getting withdrawal symptoms or it's like I'm losing energy or like the colors are draining out of me or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's like the outdoors is kind of my docking station. So I need to be there and kind of recharge. And I've done that. So I've been last week, I've, I've been kind of traveling around a bit um, in the in the north of the UK, and I've mostly been city based. And then yesterday, after a, a long day of Zoom and, and team sessions, I went outside, there's kind of a nice landscape with rolling hills and so on fairly close to where I live. So I went up there and I walked around for two hours. And I just stood there and I just needed to kind of stand there and let it all come in and out and kind of, it's almost like when the, when you have like a membrane and the, the pressure is different on both sides and it just needs to be there for a while until it kind of levels, levels out. And I think I need to do that regularly. Otherwise I'm not, I'm not feeling well if I don't do that. And how I can see that is if I spend a lot of time in nature and it's really like nice and beautiful and sort of wild, wild enough or beautiful enough and like, you know, happy nature, not like distressed sort of nature, then it's, it's like my breathing changes and it changes in a way I can't sort of try and do myself. I have to wait until it happens. Lior talks about free luft sleeve as an achievement of homeostasis, a rebalancing of pressures that accumulate during time in the city. This realignment of pressures reaches the right levels out in nature. It's not something that has to be managed, because nature is by definition a place that takes care of itself without the interference of planning committees and maintenance crews. I think it has something to do with homecoming. It also feels like almost like an umbilical cord without it being a, you know, a cord to something specific. 
but the same kind of exchange and the same kind of you need that to get some essential nutrients that you can't make yourself it is something about being held and being welcome and being put back together so kind of rest and healing and and all of that yeah and i'm trying to extrapolate from the word because it's not it's not german but it's closely related enough so how I'm in my in my head trying to make sense of the word is that the love of fresh air. So there is love, definitely. And it's also not just fresh air, it's really the, the outdoors. So it's not, you know, like you couldn't replicate that with an, an oxygen cylinder. Lior's final observation about the linguistics of free luft sleeve is important. Free luft sleeve is a Norwegian word, and yet Lior is not Norwegian. They are German, so Friluftsliv is a foreign word to them, but close enough to some German to almost have it make sense. The English language is not quite as close to Norwegian as German, perhaps. Um, nonetheless, it's in the same language family. The emotional concept of free luft sleeve is identified to English speakers and it feels familiar when that happens. That's how it was for Audrey Holliger. Audrey is a certified medical support clinical hypnotherapist. She specializes in stress reduction, relaxation, and natural pain management. She's also a neuro-linguistic programming master practitioner and a certified narrative consultant. Her education and professional experience includes an MS in environmental sciences and engineering, a BS in food science and technology. Audrey has decades of experience in market research, focusing on physician, patient, and caregiver journeys across multiple disease states. I've known Audrey for something like 20 years. We've worked together many times, traveling to different cities. You know, cities are where the people are, and so that's where the work is. But there is another side to Audrey, one that I haven't had the privilege to witness in person. It seems that Audrey flourishes when she is given time to be outside. Like Lior, Audrey told me a story about when she was a child. You know, this is grade school and very, very young, eight to 10. And uh, we were surrounded by woods in our childhood home. So I can see the woods and the ravine. And we were free range kids. You know, we didn't we weren't, we were watched over, but we all played in the woods. It wasn't like today with the worry of where is your child? And, you know, all the mothers on the neighborhood rang a big bell and yelled, you know, and you could hear them um, calling you home. But so that ranging around in the ravine in the summers, I, I don't remember winter. I don't remember any of that. I just remember being in the ravine and I remember this log I used to, um, go on with a, a little friend or by myself and would walk across this log and it seemed so high up and dangerous. And I remember that it probably wasn't, it was over the creek. Um, but I really remember this little green tree frog 
that we would see tiny, tiny little green tree frog and just being in the woods and the evergreens. And um, we had a fort made out of uh, rotting, uh, rotting tree trunk bark. So it was red, must've been cedar, but it was just powder, you know? So I remember playing with that powdery and being amazed that that tree trunk would turn into powder, you know? So just playing in the woods and being in the woods and seeing that little tree frog. And then just the other day here, it just kind of mapped across because I was not in the woods yet, but just in my backyard. And I, I lifted up a little tray that I have to catch some water under the faucet. And there's this tiny little frog. It wasn't bright green, but it was, you know, just as big as your thumb, just tiny, tiny. And I'm like, I haven't seen one of those tiny little frogs since I was a kid. And I think that's what kind of brought it all together when we came here and I went in the woods for the first time, which we didn't even know we had all these trails around us. I went in the woods and I'm walking through the woods. And I just felt like I was home. I just had all the auditory memories of the kinds of birds I grew up with are here as well. And it just really struck me how I just feel so connected in the woods to nature and something larger. Yes, you know, the childhood is grounding and all that, but it, it's just that, it's just that, like a snap. It just, I know this is the, the outdoors are where I belong. And that's where I feel most at peace. That's what supports me spiritually. That's my connection to spirit. So for me, being in the woods is very deep experience. And I just, I really enjoy it. It doesn't really matter doesn't have to be a specific wood or a specific forest or it's just, I mean, they're so stately. We're surrounded by these ponderosa pines and they're huge, you know, like, like all the trees were in childhood, <laughs> you know, but the, it's just, I feel very connected looking at them and I'm not a poet, but like lines will come into my head that I write down, you know, that help me feel very connected to something larger and I reread it once in a while and it's like where did that come from so it does it's something it's something I'm part of but also something so much larger than myself I just feel like the nature outdoors embodies that that spirit and that strength and it just feels very right to me, I have to, I have to be out. I like to be outside at least some part of the day. And I really feel it, you know, when I'm not. Audrey and Lior grew up on different continents, speaking different languages. But in trying to describe their experience of free Luftsleeve, they both used the same term, free range, to describe the special feeling of what they were allowed to experience as children. This shared experience across vast expanses of geography and differences in language suggests something that's connected to some primal aspect of what it is to be human. Audrey had this same freedom to go out ranging in woods, even though they contained very different species of plants and animals from what Lior knew as a child, Audrey was growing up in the northwest corner of the United States, where she returned to live just a few years ago. 
Of course, the last few years haven't been quite the same as what we're used to. They certainly were not free range. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we could not always travel freely from city to city, or even from building to building. Yet, the outdoors was never shut down. It's been so much easier now with the lack of travel. You know, just being able to be out in the woods and feel so calm and centered and at peace. They're very healing there. I, I often feel like it's like balm to me. You know, it's, it's like an emotional balm. It just, uh, it's very, very, uh, yeah, right. That, that's why I love that phrase of the rightness that comes from spending outdoors in nature. That's my spiritual connection. Maybe that's it. <laughs> you know, or I'll be walking in the woods and sit down under a tree. And I don't know, I just, I just feel very connected in it and at peace with when things in the world get crazy and chaotic. I just feel like it's the trees are so grounding. Nature's very grounding. I feel like all is well there. What Audrey mentions here about trees seems very important to me. Remember how Lior felt climbing up trees and being held in their branches? Well, Audrey is referring to a different part of the feeling of being close to trees. She calls them grounding. Feeling grounded is another emotion related to Freeluftsleve, but one that we'll have to get to later in another week. For now, let's listen to more about the feeling that Audrey gets just being among those trees. There is a specific emotional benefit from that that is very interesting to me. That feeling inside, that yeah. connecting us with nature and the cosmos and that's, that being connected, there's something larger out there, you know, not just, you know, us, you know, running around with our day-to-day -day activities and things like that. There's a higher purpose. And I think nature is, just being out in nature reminds me of that. And it's, and I know from, from being inside, my home is a refuge. I love my home um, and I value it very much and I appreciate it very much, but it is just four walls at the end of the day. And I've been in homes that I've loved and left. I've had to leave them, you know, and your, your house is after all just a structure, you know, it's gotta be inside. I've gotta be okay. I've gotta, I've gotta know to be okay and be, be right in the world. If this is all taken from me or, you know. One day I don't have a home. So I think it's that inner, it's that inner strength that I feel from the, the trees and the, the nature. That's, that's what's going to stay, not these structures. Audrey taps into a very ancient piece of wisdom in her comparison of trees and houses. She describes a different sense of relationship with houses, which she values yet seem more temporary than the trees growing outside. Audrey acknowledges that she may lose her house. She may be forced to move from one home to another. Such structures are temporary. Trees, however, are what's going to stay, even when the houses we know today are gone. Trees endure. This isn't an isolated observation that Audrey makes. There is a linguistic connection between trees and endurance that goes back thousands of years to the theoretically reconstructed language of Proto-Indo-European. 
the word tree and the word endure are both derived from the ancient root word deru, which is thought to have referred to things that are able to withstand destructive forces over time. A tree does not simply have the quality of endurance. A tree is an embodiment of the principle of endurance. Other emotionally important words also come from this same ancient idea. But again, we're going to have to get back to those in a later episode. Let's stay on track with Free Luftsleeve. There's more to the outside world, after all, than just trees. I was reminded of that when I spoke to Penelope Marghetti. Penelope is a former colleague I met when I was working in Chicago. At the time, she was managing research projects for corporate clients who were seeking to understand the nuances of consumer motivation. Penelope is now in Miami working for a leadership consulting firm. The common factor in all of Penelope's work, is her attention to the underlying cultural subtleties that must inform business practices in the global economy. My thesis at Duke was about combining consumer psychology with this other major that was called visual media, and I wanted to show how consumer, ad- consumer psychology can influence advertising and how the different cultures and also cross-cultural psychology plays a really big role in that and how your culture changes your consumer psychology and all that and how advertisements change across cultures. Penelope came by her passion for cross-cultural work as a result of personal experiences early in her life when her family immigrated to the United States from an island in Greece. Even as she moved from place to place, the joy in being outside remained a constant in her life. However, that joy became more difficult to access when she moved as a young adult to downtown Chicago. I have been always like such a huge, huge nature person. I I grew up in Greece and on an island. I was on the beach all the time, sand under my feet. And then when I wasn't, I was always out in like the forest that was near my grandparents' house or, and then when we moved to Miami, we had a backyard and I've always been barefoot, always been barefoot because I love walking barefoot outside. And then when I moved to Chicago, I, now I live downtown and I struggle to even find like parks with grass areas. So I've been feeling kind of the opposite of this in a way, as in I'm, I'm missing nature a lot. I feel a little bit out of place when I don't see a lot of green or a lot of trees or a lot of grass to step on. And then my parents visited me a couple of weeks ago and they brought our dog. So with our dog, I was looking for parks to take him and I found this beautiful, gigantic park that I hadn't been at before and we were playing Frisbee. And I took my shoes off because I didn't have good shoes to run on the grass. And I just felt like right at home and I would just kept my shoes off the entire time. And I was just walking on the grass and it just felt so good. I just, I feel so grounded when I'm in nature under trees. And I don't know, for some reason, just being barefoot on grass makes me feel like I'm in the right place. <laughs> 
Penelope reminds us that the joy we feel in being outside is not something that we experience alone. Penelope struggled to find natural spaces in Chicago until her family came to visit. It was her family's dog who led the way back outdoors, showing Penelope where green space was to be found. We as human beings are not alone in this world, and that is one of the sources of the pleasure that we feel as Friedluftsleve. We live in this world along with other beings. Our dogs, the grass, and the trees are our companions when we step outside. Most of the natural world, of course, has no dogs, no grass, and no trees. We forget this. But most of the surface of our planet is covered with water. Penelope, as a small child growing up on an island, felt a special connection to the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. And she still does. It's probably my favorite place in the world. It's just the bluest water, clearest water. You can see shadows of the fish that are swimming. It's that clear. Um, so just like standing where the waves like meet the sand and just standing and looking at the blue water that's surrounded by like the green behind it is just, I've, it's one of the places where I feel the closest to nature. I feel like it's just water, trees, blue sky, and you kind of forget that cities and I don't know, concrete jungles exist. Of course, Penelope doesn't live on that Greek island anymore. Most of us cannot live in the countryside or on an isolated island. There is little economic opportunity for us there, and there are now far too many human beings on the planet for us all to live as hunters and gatherers or farmers. So how can we cope with this estrangement from nature? How can we feel free sleeve when we are unable to abandon our homes and the civilized lives that sustain us? One response to this challenge came from the industrial and organizational psychologist Jamie McNeil. Jamie specializes in identifying beliefs and behaviors that inhibit desired outcomes, then leading his clients in articulating effective strategies for overcoming those obstacles. He is currently teaching at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. I am James Jamie McNeil. I'm 54. I'm black, I'm gay, I'm married, I'm a scholar, I'm a lifelong learner, and my purpose is to teach. I began doing research work with Jamie during the pandemic. Our work at the time, however, was exclusively remote. I live in the Northeast, but for a long while, Jamie has lived and worked on the West Coast. In his time there, Jamie has witnessed some of the destruction of the natural world outdoors that has come along with the accelerating climate crisis. I worked in Northern California. I traveled about like 80% of the time and the fires in Sonoma 
were really, really bad. I had never actually experienced that, but I, we were 60, 70, 80 miles away and you had to wear a mask because it, it smelled of burning asphalt and burning rubber, which is a horrible smell. In spite of the fires and droughts and atmospheric rivers afflicting California, Jamie remains committed to taking time to get outside. The breeze, the sun, just motion. Like sitting at this desk as many hours as I do, it hurts after a while. And doesn't care, I don't care how expensive this chair is, it's a great chair. But sitting down and stuffing your body in this shape like this is not comfortable. I mean, I got a big monitor, so I don't have to look down anymore, but it is, I, I walk so that I can sit. For Jamie, the chair represents the uncomfortable relationship many of us have with civilization. Getting out of his chair and choosing to get outside is an essential part of his effort to remain healthy. Jamie's approach is an active one. His free loose sleeve isn't just an emotion, it's a practice, like the practice of meditation. It's something that we work on in order to attain its benefits. Simply getting outside isn't enough for Jamie. Instead of passively soaking up the sensations of being in a natural environment, Jamie spoke to me of the benefits of walking outdoors. This month, for instance, I walked 150 miles. That was my goal on my, from my watch. And like years ago, I discovered that I loved walking. And I discovered it in San Francisco. And sort of taking on the terrain of San Francisco was really daunting. Uh, and it was a way for me to um, process being away from home. It was to keep, me, keep my mind busy. And a friend of mine would often join me. And we just walked everywhere and I fell in love with San Francisco on my feet. And I didn't, I wouldn't have thought that San Francisco was kind of a nature place because it really is like the Western New York. I really just got outside and, and discovered that San Francisco is actually very much about nature. There's nature and civilization and coexisting. I love bridges and getting going over the Golden Gate Bridge to the Marine Headlands and just walking. So I wouldn't have ever thought of myself as somebody who is an outdoor, who, who comes alive outdoors, but I do. And uh, I think it probably has to do with just sort of like living in my head. I live in so much of my life is in my head. And so it's a way to, to, like, to experience my body. I used to run. I was a runner. I did marathons and I, I still run. And every time when I'm in my best shape is when I'm running. But I actually discovered that when I can do long periods of time without interruption, without risk of injury or hating it, is walk. And I can walk. Sometimes we walk 22 miles in a day. Like walk, get up five o'clock in the morning, walk across the bridge to Sausalito, turn around, have breakfast, come back. Jamie's love of bridges is a wonderful representation of his own way of experiencing free sleeve. 
his practice of long walks outside within the city of San Francisco bridges the apparent divide between constructed and natural spaces. Jamie has learned to see that nature is not something that exists outside of cities and civilization. We can perceive nature coexisting in places along with the industrial world if we cultivate the right mindset. Now, there may be some purists out there who insist that the only proper way to experience free Luftsleeve is to travel out to a truly wild place, completely free of human impact. The truth, of course, is that there is no place left on earth that is completely free of human impact. Even at the bottom of the deepest part of the oceans, we find trash and the scars left from trawling. Besides, emotion is felt from the inside out. Its validity comes from our own experience of it, not from the compliance with external rules. Now, none of the people that we heard from today come from Norway, yet the Norwegian emotion of Friluftsliv feels familiar to them. The word is a foreign import, but the concept is not. Friluftsliv is something that people feel and have a strong connection to, even though we don't have a word for this emotion in the English language. And that deficit is not due to a small vocabulary. The English language has many more words in it than most other languages do. The fact that even English lacks a word for Friluftsliv suggests a larger trend, that people tend to feel more emotions than they have the language to describe. There are opportunities for cross-cultural learning of emotion concepts that can enrich our lives. When we gain the word Freeluftsleeve, we gain the ability to talk about an emotion we have already experienced, although we didn't know how to identify it. To describe the feeling, we had to use a large number of words to get to the idea. When we bring those ideas into the word Freeluftsleeve, we begin to share our passion for being outside in natural spaces more easily. Natural spaces are not always easy to come by. They are under threat from the activities associated with human civilization. That same human civilization, as much as it protects us, can make us feel emotionally drained. Talking about Freeluftsleeve is a way for us to talk about the feeling of the lack of balance inherent in civilization and the importance of addressing threats like pollution and climate change. Emotions are internal experiences that tell us when something is worth paying attention to. When we expand our emotional vocabulary, we don't just get better at crossword puzzles. We gain new conceptual tools for dealing with the challenges of our complex world. The work of expanding our emotional granularity has just begun. 
In next week's episode, we will explore another emotion that may feel foreign to many Americans, even though it originated within the boundaries of the United States. We will consider the emotion of compersion. Until then, thanks for listening in.